Connecticut and Massachusetts, ZM Homes buys houses. Sell your property to the local guys. Needs repairs, updates, maybe foreclosure or inherited? No problem. We got gotcha. you. Google or add us on Facebook at ZandMHomes.com. Rexy's musical podcast. In 1974, guitarist Richard Lloyd and his band's manager Terry Ork approached the owner of a dumpy little biker bar at 315 Bowery in New York City. At the time, the owner of the bar was hanging a large banner over the front door, a bar that he was hoping would only feature country and bluegrass music. That's it. He was not planning on having the place being overtaken by rock bands, nor was he planning on the place becoming an iconic hub for one of the most dynamic cultural movements in music history. The name of the club was CBGB's, and on that day, Richard Lloyd and Terry York convinced the owner, Hilly Crystal, to let their band television play on a Sunday night. The band, which not only featured Lloyd, also featured Tom Bellany guitar and Richard Hell on bass, and would become not only the club's very first rock band to play at CBGB's, it would be television that first lit the fuse in what would become the New York City punk scene. Now, I'm just going to come right out and say this. Of all the bands that came out of CBGB's over the next couple of years, the Ramones, Early Talking Heads, Blondie, the Patti Smith Group, it would be television that would release what is perhaps the best and most enduring record of the bunch. Yes, the first couple of albums by the Ramones were great. Yeah, the first couple of albums by Talking Heads were pretty good too. But compared to television's 1977 debut album, Marky Moon, it's not even a fair fight. Let me take it another step for you. Marky Moon isn't just the strongest punk album to come out of New York in 1977. It's one of the greatest guitar albums ever released. And it would not be an exaggeration to say that Marky Moon was punk's first masterpiece. The funny thing is that listening to the record 44 years later, it hardly feels like a punk album at all. In fact, calling it a punk album ignores the intricacies and beauty of this album completely. If the whole idea around punk was that anyone could do it regardless of their ability, then television were the exact opposite of that. Marky Moon is a timelessly breathtaking record that should be essential to anyone who has ever bought records or for anyone who has ever bothered to try playing guitar. It's an essential record that has never been out of print and has been included in nearly every list of the greatest albums of all time. The interplay between Tom Verlaine and Richard Lloyd and guitar to this day has been largely unmatched. I think what I'm trying to tell you is television was pretty good. Since the band broke up, Richard Lloyd has released a number of excellent solo albums, including 1979's Alchemy and Field of Fire in 1986. He's collaborated with John Doe of X, Rocket from a Tomb, featuring Cheetah Chrome from the Dead Boys and David Thomas from Pierre Ubu, Chris Stamey from the DBs, and Matthew Sweet. In 2019, Richard Lloyd wrote a tremendous memoir entitled Everything is Combustible, Television, CBGBs, and Five Decades of Rock and Roll. It's an amazing book that looks at Richard's life both in and out of television, finding himself in the company of the likes of Jimi Hendrix, Keith Richards, Keith Moon, and many, many others. It also chronicles his journey in and out of addiction problems, and of course, he also talks at length about the late Tom Verlaine. Richard Lloyd and his band are on tour this month. In fact, they'll be at the Parlor Room in Northampton on Saturday, September 16th. This is my conversation with the legendary Richard Lloyd from television on Baxi's musical podcast. 
I just finished reading your book, Everything is Combustible. In fact, I've it's one of the very few biographies I actually read twice because I want to make sure I got everything correct, and I loved it. But the more compelling stories are actually the stories apart from all that. Um, before, right. before you guys record a, a single note, like one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which I thought was a really interesting part of your story, is about Velvet Turner and how right. essential and important he was to you in your career. Tell me a little bit about him and, and what he meant to you, not just musically, but personally. I was at a friend of mine's house after school, Zeke Berman, and uh, he got a phone. We were waiting on some drugs, <laughs> and he thought it might be the deal. We thought it might be the dealer, but it wasn't. It was this guy. He got off the phone, and he was like, oh, no, there's this kid. He claims to know Jimi Hendrix, and he's coming over. <laughs> and uh, 10 minutes later, he was there, rang the bell and was let in and the door opened. And I saw this, you know, scrawny black kid. And in any case, the moment I laid eyes on him, I knew in my intuition that he did know Hendrix. And uh, in the meantime, everybody else that was there had taken a kind of a little pact that they were going to laugh at him and make him so-called prove it <laughs> and uh, not believe him. But I believed him. What do you think it was that, uh, that convinced you? I mean, you know, tuition aside, what was it that allowed you? I don't you? know. I have, I have pretty good intuition and it was just pretty, pretty clear to me that he was not lying and everybody else was lying. He was not lying. And it was true. In fact, he knew Jimi Hendrix and, and was kind of a, a protege in a way. Of, uh, That's of right. He was one of Jimmy's own. He was Jimmy's only guitar student. I mean that that Jimmy sat him down with the guitar and actually taught him. And then to have him teach you the things that he had learned from from Jimi Hendrix. I mean, well, I don't know if it was I don't know if it was him teaching me, but he would come over to my house and show me the stuff Jimmy was showing him, and then we would both try to mimic it. So that's that's how that came about. In the book, when you talk about your own guitar playing, there's a whole series about, uh, especially early on, about you being very self-conscious about it and, and maybe even insecure right. uh, to play in front of, of people, which isn't unusual for you know, a lot of people who are starting out or just you know, you know learning in their own room. But something had to change for you in order to start playing in, in front of actual crowds and, and, and people. And Well, I got invited... Uh to go on stage with John Lee Hooker uh, one one night in Boston at the at the jazz workshop where John Lee was playing. And uh, I was backstage because there was no security there. You could just go and, and I pulled up a chair and I sat in it and uh, he was talking to somebody and then he turned to me and he said, and you young man, what's your name? I said, Richard. He says, Richie, what you do? I said, well, I play guitar. And he said, well, you're going to sit in with the band tonight then. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. He goes, no, no, no. I'm going to turn the lights on and search for you. I'm going to have people come and find you. And you're coming up on stage. So it was kind of that. Uh, that forced me in front of people. And it was very <laughs> painful for me to sit in with him. And I was like, uh, you know, barely uh, a baby yeah. on the guitar. 
at the time. So to be on stage with a guy like that, I mean, how did, did it just, I mean, did it occur to you that, Hey, maybe I could actually do more of this or did you still feel that? Oh, sure. Yeah. But it wasn't that I would be able to do more of it, but that my time would come. It was clear that I was not in that particular age group or, you know, I must've been 16. <laughs> and, uh, so I was not prepared. And in fact, television's the first band I was ever in. I wasn't in a band. I was just biding my time, waiting for the right moment. And when I was reading that in the book, I was just thinking, like, you know, if that had been me, I, I'd, be look, I'd be looking around the room and saying, what am I doing here? How did I get so lucky? I mean, just to have that experience with John Lee Hooker is amazing. Yeah, sure was. Yeah. So when you talk about television and 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 we'll talk you know more in in depth about it you know there's like a whole introductory period of you meeting richard hell and then going to see tom verlaine for the very first time and seeing him on stage and being convinced that this is the guy you that you want to play with again i assume that intuition has a big part of it much like your your uh, friendship with velvet turner but what was it that you saw in him that made you convinced that this is the guy you wanted to start a band with? Well, he was quirky, that's for sure, and uh, had insecurity. He also had security Mm. in what he was doing and a very poetic uh, frame of mind. But his playing was really, uh, how can I put it? Let's spare. I mean, he was just a, a... supporting himself on acoustic, I mean, on electric guitar, but playing cowboy chords, you know, right. not bar chords, way at the bottom of the of the fretboard. And there were so many, not, I don't want to call them holes, but I can't think of another word. There was like places in his performance that were missing or that I knew that I could fit, fill in, and make uh, what he had stronger. And he could do the same for me, vice versa. Because I knew in my heart of hearts that I was not at that time uh, able to lead a band. And Tom was. And he had no band. In fact, they had had a failed attempt at a band, and they had put out advertisements in the Neon Boys for a second guitarist uh, with the notion, uh, talent not necessary. <laughs> and I had a lot of talent, <laughs> but <laughs> I guess it wasn't necessary. I had something else. And uh, Tom came by and we traded guitars back and forth. And and that's when we both said, yeah, let's give it a, give it a go. I think when, when people listen to television, they listen to Marky Moon, they hear that, you know, how well you guys play off each other, which doesn't happen very often in a lot of bands. It's not like, you know, one's playing rhythm and one's playing lead. You guys are like interchangeably creating. Well, that's not, that's not entirely true because the way it worked was whenever Tom is singing, I am playing the lead or the melodic support. The only time I switched to pure rhythm guitar is when he took a solo. All the other times he was playing rhythm and I was playing the, the, the melody lines or the lead. 
And I told him right off the bat, you know, I'm a lead guitar player. I'm not a rhythm guitar player. I'm, and uh, that's the way it turned out. So by the time you actually do start playing with him, did he also see, or I mean, did he ever really intimate this to you, that he also saw where you fit into the into the puzzle? We didn't talk like that. So I, I you know, clearly it was as clear as rain, you know, but I don't know how, I don't know how indelible a mark that made on him. <laughs> I have no idea. I just know it happened. I know in, in a lot of different collaborations, it really is, is all about chemistry and it, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the two of you are best of friends moving forward, but there's oh, no. something. Yeah. Yeah. Bands that go on the road together and then they never, they never uh, socialize. That's, Happens all the time. Yeah, but clearly, you know, especially the the two of you, the other guys in the band as well, but particularly the two of you, there was this yeah. chemistry that you know it's it's you can't put your sure. finger on what it was, but when you hear those two records, uh, you know, Marky Moon and Adventure, it's like it's it's kind of hard to deny that there was something special going on between the two of you, even if it was never actually articulated that way. Yeah, I mean, if I listen to, I don't listen to my own stuff. <laughs> hardly at all but if i when i did and when i do i only hear like one thing i mean i hear the song and all the parts you know i mean musicians are different than non-musicians in that i mean i'm i can't listen to music uh anymore because i'm paying attention to the reverbs and the the, the amp placements and the, you know the mix <laughs> i'm listening to the snare drum is too loud or what have you whatever it is and most people will be like which one's the drums <laughs> yeah i would imagine when you get too close to something it can be you can almost be you know, hypercritical of of where things are where things you know should be yeah yeah absolutely you know when tom died earlier this year you wind up you know, saying things and, and, and writing some things that were, you know, you know very kind to him. So very, you know, some very you know, respectful things about yeah. him and understandably so. But in the book, I mean, you kind of also describe him as a very complicated guy and that the relationship between you as business partners and as individuals, you know, was not an easy straight line. There were No, he shot himself in the foot a lot and be, by nature of our relationship that meant i got shot in the foot which is not uh pleasant <laughs> no. you know i don't know how many times that he embarrassed me in front of record company people etc or in front of journalists or in front of fans for that matter i mean it was difficult it was something i had to set aside in order to work with him because he wasn't going to change as, or if he did change, it wouldn't be on on my behalf. Well, It'd have to come from something in it. Yeah, and and there's the the parts of the story in which you're you're about to sign a record deal, and you know he wants to sign as a as a solo artist and have the rest of television. Well, be. we didn't know that at the time. I learned that uh, post after the after the fact. But yes, that's what happened. Because Patty had, Smith had been signed uh, by herself to Arista, and then the Patty Smith group were musicians that she kept on uh, retainer or what have you. I mean the Patty Smith band, 
were not signed to Arista, period. So he wanted to deal commiserate with that, and they just simply said, we're not signing you. We're signing a band, and you're in the band. But if you want to get signed by yourself, you know, we're not the record company for you. When you do find this information out, I mean... Yeah, it was far too late to do anything. (laughs) (laughs) To get angry, even. You know, it was just sort of like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That happened. (laughs) I have some experience, you know, working with long-term partners, and I know that sometimes, you know, the things you find out afterwards are like, well, that's kind of interesting. But, you know, like you already said, there's, there's nothing you can do about it, but it's like, it just kind of adds a piece to... Yeah. To, to a story that that uh, you just wonder well well why would he have why would he have done that? Well, we can clearly see he didn't think of it as a as I'm joining a band as much as he thought he was the whole thing, and that's clearly not the case. You and know, you know, all you got to do is listen to his solo records, which are like you know he might as well have used drum machines, and probably did. so i've done a lot of interviews with people who are around at the time and and i'm glad i got a a chance to you to to talk to you about this about you know cbgb's and i know that the the, the story of that club is is pretty infamous you and terry or convincing hilly crystal to to play you know live rock music as far back as as 1974 but what's so interesting to me is you know here's a guy that didn't really want to bring this into his club he does, and all of a sudden, you guys, you know, wind up playing on Sunday nights. And next thing you know, this scene begins to grow that New York was sorely lacking. How quickly did that scene start to happen? Did it take a long period of time, or did or did it? No. Yeah. No. Within six months, there were like six solid bands that were around television. Then uh, Ramones, Talking Heads, Blondie, um, you know, those were the main bands. And then on the side, you had things like Mink DeVille, which was kind of like, you know, rhythm and blues, but original, too. The deal we made with Hilly was, I mean, basically, it was a great deal for Hilly because Terry Ork did all the work. (laughs) I mean, basically, he booked the club for the first two years, year and a half, and behind this, behind the scenes, it was really Terry's social experiment. He wanted to be like Warhol, who had, uh, you know, had a relationship with the Velvet Underground. And Terry very much wanted to do that, create a sociological scene. And, uh, you know, he needed a band, and we were the band. You also, in doing this, turned what might have been maybe the biggest dump in New York into this legendary, <laughs> into this legendary landmark. I mean, it, it. I mean, it's 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 incredible that you know if you've ever been there or look at pictures inside, you go, well, how did magic happen dump. here? <laughs> exactly. But you also had spent. Uh, I I know from the book and 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 reading other things that uh, you had also prior to this had spent a lot of time. At uh, at Max's Kansas City, especially in the in the back room. Sure, I heard lots of stories about that experience from from other people. What was your experience like at at Max's? I mean, because it, it sounded like a pretty eclectic 
type of thing from you know Warhol to everybody else, you know Lou Reed. You just, I mean, it just sounds like a, a wide array of things going on in a very small space. Yeah. Well, there were places that the musicians would hang out, and in Warhol's case, and the the factory, uh, Max's Kansas City was like that place. There were places like Steve Paul's The Scene and Ungano's, which prior to that had been places where musicians from out of town would uh, hang out, you know, English musicians. But CBGB's was a place where, you know, it was the Lower East Side and uh, you could be from there, from New York and play there. In fact, we didn't have anybody playing covers. That was like that was like the antithesis of uh, what we wanted in a club. As it's been described to me, as I understand this, all of these things are happening at once at at CBGBs. There wasn't really much of a scene to speak of at the time that this was starting to to turn. But by the, I don't know, it was its own scene. Yeah. But it, but it sounds like New York prior to this, you know, there was the you know the Mercer you know for a while. But prior to this, well, it, that it, fell down, didn't it? Right, it, that, <laughs> that fell down. But it but it sounded like you know prior to this, there wasn't really a growing scene of music happening in New York at that time, and it just seemed like it was like a perfect storm of of incidents that yeah. that happened, and starting with with the Mercer uh, you know collapsing on itself. Tell exactly. Me, yeah, tell me about that. Well, I don't know because I was on uh, on route from Los Angeles, where I had been living for two and a half years, back to New York, basically, basically because I had heard about the possibility of a scene developing, and the the place was the the Mercer Art Center. It uh, we stopped in uh, New Orleans on our way across the country. And while I was there, the Mercer Art Center had fallen down. So the scene that I was hoping to find in New York had collapsed on my way there. So I don't know that much about Mercer Art Center's scene because it had uh, disappeared by the time I got back to New York. People were doing gigs in like the Hotel Diplomat, in the ballroom of the Hotel Diplomat. I used to go there and see weird acts, you know, like the dolls. Remind me if I'm getting this right. On days that you were not playing, you were still there pretty regularly, hanging out or watching oh, yeah, watching other bands. Open for me, it was an open bar, and it was a party, and it was like New Year's Eve for three years. Were there particular bands that seemed to stand out for for you? I mean, obviously, you know, television was you know a, you know, a pretty important you know band there, but there were other. Th- bands going in and out of there. Were, were there any particular favorites of yours? Oh, I loved the Ramones even before they ever played CBGBs. I saw them at the performance workshop on 20th Street. Uh, Talking Heads were good. We did a lot of shows with them. And then there were others, you know, not as not as good musically, like Blondie, who weren't very good in the beginning, but turned out to be the biggest one you know, in terms of sales of any of us. And Patty Smith, who came in later, after we were filling the place anyway. You know, one of the things that I think is so kind of interesting, you know, so television gets lumped into this whole categorization as, as being a punk band. And, you know, I think anyone who's... Exactly. I think anyone who's ever listened to 
television nor know anything about them. You know, when I listen to those records, they're just great rock and roll records. I mean, there's very little punk that I hear in that. I hear something yeah. almost more, far more sophisticated than, than punk would become and, and you know had been I at guess. that time. What do I know? Yeah. Well, I mean, but you were in the middle of it. How do you see that? I mean, I mean, everyone needs to categorize well, we were something. A band before the word punk became synonymous with this new, we were called new wave. Journalists didn't know how to, you know, they didn't know what to say. So when this, uh, you know, punk thing came along, everybody jumped on the bandwagon because now they have a, a little word that they can put down and uh, cover a lot of ground. It just, it, it just so. to me seemed to be kind of like, like a lazy way of explaining what television was all about. I mean, the timing, you know, suggested well, that journalists are inherently lazy. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've read stuff that's culled from earlier <laughs> reportage. Right. You know, people are too lazy to actually go and do it themselves. In the book, you have some amazing stories about uh, some people that you spent time with. There's some great, great stories about, uh, your friendship with Anita Pallenberg and spending time with, with Keith Richards. Yeah. That, I mean, that just, as I'm reading it, I just thought, first of all, it's just spend time with, with Keith, you know, for most people, just, you, you hope that Keith is exactly what you hope Keith is. And it sounds like that's exactly who Keith is, exactly what you expect him to be. Yeah. There's no, uh, secretiveness in him. He's open. But he also seems like, you know, like genuinely a, you know, a pretty warm person in his more. Oh, very warm. I love the guy. He's, uh, you know, considering what he has to put up with, you know, and I've had a taste of it, like barely. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when you're up against that kind of uh, visibility, you know, you can't do anything without it being big notice. Uh, you know, he re kept remarkable composure well i th i think when you're i mean when you reach the level of that kind of success and you've been doing it for what 60 years or so i mean yeah you, there has to be a certain acceptance of the fact that he can't ever stop being keith richard he's keith richard 24 right. hours a day yeah but you become a kind of uh caricature Ex of yourself. Ex exactly exactly which you can't help it yeah and also in the book you talk about you and Keith Moon and, you know, another guy who is somewhat of a caricature of, of himself, but didn't, you know, have the lasting. But none of us, none of us were trying to do that. That's no. the interesting thing. Those were people who were all very much themselves. Nobody wrote the rules. Nobody followed the rules. So everybody was their own character. I know that Anita had told uh, Keith, that I was in this band television and the television were going to be huge, which at the time was as promising as anything else, uh, that that would be true. Right. In fact, John Lennon saw us at club 82 said, we reminded him of the Beatles in Hamburg energy wise. Yeah. So, you know, these were like older brothers. They weren't, they, we weren't exactly peers, but uh, we were certainly in the in the in the game. You also talk very openly in the book. I found this part to be you know, pretty pretty powerful. You talk about your addiction issues in, in the past: alcohol, heroin, nearly anything else you could get your hands on. 
But you also talk yeah, about the much. yeah, but you also talk about the process of battling those addictions and how sick you had be had become. You know, there's so much. You know, there's so many people struggling with you know opioid addiction now. When when yeah, when you look at what's going on now oh, with well, I, drug yeah. culture or anything, I mean, do, how do you? Do you relate to that? Does it seem larger to you? I mean, what is what is your thought about it today? Uh, it's moved into the bridge and tunnel club, bridge and tunnel crowd. We called them. And they weren't from Manhattan, <laughs> from right? Long Island. You know, like every everybody's into it now, and it's very sad because they don't know what they're getting into. At least those who are, the funny thing is, and and. and uh, this is a good example of it in the Johnny Thunder's realm. I'm not saying Johnny did it, but, you know, you look at somebody like Keith Richards and you say, he does tons of drugs, he writes songs, and uh, he's famous and wealthy. But you don't realize the first thing he did was play. The second thing he did was write the songs. The third thing he did was take some drugs so he could continue to do it. And the fourth thing, you know, he gets wealthy on top of everything else. But uh, so what happens is people look at that or they look at Guns N' Roses and something. They say, well, then I'm going to do the drugs and that'll help me write the songs. And then I'll get discovered and I'll be famous and I'll get wealthy. And, and that's like ass backwards. <laughs> Another thing I want to ask you about, and I, I think it's a really cool thing because i've actually interviewed both cheetah chrome and and craig bell from uh in uh, rocket from the tomb rocket from a tomb which i think is like one of the most amazing things that that i've ever heard of a band that you know had all these great songs they were a great band they break up and it splits into two things the dead boys and Pierre ubu and then when they right. came back in 2003 the late peter lofter couldn't participate so they asked you and I think that's amazing. Yeah, my interview with Craig Bell was just was awesome, and it was such well, a that's great. He's a great guy. He's a wonderful guy. But to go back uh, with with those guys in a in a band that could have been so huge, and then to produce you know the album that they that they did wind up recording, that had to be right. a really cool experience. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, Cheetah wrote me an email saying he was doing some RFTT thing and would I like to participate? And I had no idea what RFTT meant. <laughs> I didn't know it was Rocket from the Tombs, but I said yes because uh, I knew that that uh, Cheetah and I could be a team, you know, two guitar players uh, who are significantly different from one another and would make a, an interesting grouping. So I said yes without knowing what the hell I was getting myself into. And then it turned out to be the band that opened for us in Cleveland. The yeah. first time we left town to go play a show in Cleveland, they were the opening act. It's an amazing so story. What of goes that band. around comes around. Absolutely true. Uh, I know I don't have you for a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of time. I know that, that you and your current band are coming to, uh, to Northampton. Uh, Massachusetts sure on, on September 16th. Tell me a little bit about that tour and, and what people can expect when they see it. Well, I'm playing it as a trio and uh, doing some television songs and my own songs and a cover or two. And uh, it's that simple. It's rock and roll. That'd be great. What it, what it was in the beginning. Richard, I really appreciate the time that you had to spend. Like I said, I know you're, you're, you're kind of pressed on time, but and, and I want to thank you for that. Oh, thank you.
Appreciate Michael, good luck with your show. Thank and you. I look forward maybe to meeting you. I appreciate that. Good to talk to you, Richard. Right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Richard Lloyd and his band are going to be at the Parlor Room in Northampton, Massachusetts on Saturday, September 16th. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to like it, share it, tell all your friends about it. You can find regular updates about the show on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can also email me at baxatrock102.com. Thanks again to ZM Home Buyers for their support. And thanks to you for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.